The title of this morning's message is Identity and Mastering My Mouth. I want to continue to talk to you about our identity in Christ and how knowing who we are, who we really are, affects what comes out of our mouth. The last time I ministered, we looked at the truth that we are indeed just like Jesus. We are simultaneously masters on the earth as God's representatives and bondservants who are covenanted together with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of his great love and goodness towards us. As both God's representatives and his bondservant, what we say has tremendous power. Therefore, it is imperative that we use this power appropriately. We will begin again in the book of James, starting with chapter 3, beginning with verse 1. And I will be reading eventually through verse 12. Verse 1, my brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive greater condemnation. This is one of those scriptures that often frightens believers. <laughs> Do you want to help in Sunday school? No. <laughs> Don't need any greater condemnation. No thanks. <laughs> the word translated masters here is also alternatively translated as teachers. Jesus was called both master and teacher. It's translated both ways, same word both of which indicate one of the one who teaches and instructs. In Jewish culture, to have the title of teacher was greatly sought after because a teacher was held in the very highest of esteem by one's fellow Jews. Unfortunately, most of the teachers that they were accustomed to were Sadducees and Pharisees, very sad, <laughs> who were also known to teach one thing and live another, all the while judging others as falling short. The Pharisees and Sadducees counted themselves as righteous by their own standards and estimation, even though they fell far short in God's eyes. This is the idea that James is trying to convey. Those who teach one thing and live another will receive greater condemnation, but not from God, <laughs> from those who have followed them. I'm sure we are all aware of famous ministers who have fallen into sin, were publicly exposed, and then found that their once successful ministries struggled to stay above water. That's because all the world judged them <laughs> as untrustworthy. In one sense, they were like the Pharisees of Jesus' time. They preached something they didn't actually live out in their own life. When others found out and exposed it, their followers judged them, not God. For believers in Jesus and the New Covenant, there is now no condemnations, Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is no condemnation from God. So there can't be a greater condemnation coming to us from God. So you're all free to be teachers. <laughs> One of the things God told me years ago, he says, everything you do teaches. Everything you don't do teaches. He says, you are always teaching, especially as a parent. But what we do, the world we live in, we are always teaching. Now, this truth very often bothers believers who think that their salvation is part what Jesus has done and part what they do. They find it hard to believe that God will not punish or condemn a believer for his bad behavior. Their thinking is that if God doesn't punish them, they will simply continue to sin. But the truth is, sin brings forth its own fruit. And it usually looks like punishment, <laughs> but it's not. It's just fruit, sowing and reaping. 
For example, if a believer were to commit adultery, he or she would probably end up in divorce, which has much farther reaching consequences than the believer can even estimate. The truth is a believer who looks at grace as a means of excusing sin or bad behavior doesn't understand what grace is. Grace, the absolutely free loving kindness of God is the power to not sin. <laughs> Understanding our Father's and our Savior's love for us is divine enablement through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. A believer who is careless with his behavior is an immature believer. And he probably doesn't understand what salvation really is. And he doesn't know that he's so much more than a forgiven sinner. The adultery example is a good picture of immaturity. Two people don't get married with the idea that after they're married, they are free to sleep with as many people as they possibly can. I always have that picture. They just get married, you're in the receiving line, how many people are you gonna go sleep with now? We say, that's ridiculous. We wouldn't do such a thing. But they think Christians would do that. <laughs> Someone who would do such a thing couldn't have a proper understanding of marriage. They would simply be selfish, immature, and probably quickly divorced. But people usually get married because they're in love. And they wouldn't even consider being unfaithful because of that love. That's the ingredient people don't understand. <laughs> When you get saved, you get in love. <laughs> and it's that love that changes the way we live, our choices. So many believers have a obedience mentality instead of a love mentality. That if I'm disobedient, he's gonna punish me. No, sowing and reaping. <laughs> he tells us very clearly, sowing and reaping. <laughs> but there's mercy and grace. There's so much more than just a God who's mad and mean all the time, because that's not who he is at all. We fall in love and love makes you do crazy things <laughs> like go to church. Whoever heard of such a silly thing? <laughs> so this is true for believers. The more we know our Father's love and our Savior's love, the more we want to do what pleases them and that which is good for us because he always knows what's actually good for us. Love is the very foundation of our relationship with God, not rules and regulations. We love him because he first loved us. He has always loved us, just as we are, right where we are. And he still does. But he doesn't want to leave us right where we are. <laughs> he wants to reveal to us our new identities as both masters on the earth and bondservants of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. So James's warning is originally aimed at Jews really early in the church. Most scholars believe this is the first book, so he's got nothing else to consult. <laughs> there are some who say maybe Matthew was first, but by and large, they say this is so early. Christianity is so new that you hear a lot of Jewishness <laughs> because they didn't think Christianity was a new thing. They had a sect in the synagogue called the Way. They had their own Jewish messianic sect at the synagogue, which very quickly got kicked out. <laughs> so they didn't think that they were quote unquote Christians. They thought they were just Jews 
living in the fullness of what God had always planned. So James's warning is originally aimed at Jews, both saved and unsaved. Remember, he sends it out to everybody who might think themselves smarter and wiser than others and have a desire to go about correcting others and lifting themselves up as teachers who should be both honored and heeded. Unfortunately, there was a lot of this because in the early stages of Christianity, the Jewish believers didn't believe that Jesus and the Holy Spirit were for Gentiles. Then God went and poured out the Holy Spirit on unbelievers, on Gentiles. And so they thought, well, okay, that's okay, but now you need to become a Jew and keep the law. <laughs> it's okay to get Jesus and the Holy Spirit, but you really need to keep the law. So they hadn't yet come into the understanding that it was a completely different covenant. Unfortunately, we still see this kind of thing today where people want to make themselves the grace police. <laughs> they want to come and tell you how wrong you are about grace on your page. <laughs> Marcus had several opportunities to respond to fellow believers who don't share our viewpoint regarding righteousness. Even though the scripture is very clear, our right standing with God is a gift. We actually believe that. <laughs> we believe it's all of grace, all of God's absolutely free loving kindness. He accepts us right where we are, just as we are, but he doesn't want to leave us right where we are. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 4, 6, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth, legally transfers, righteousness without works. See, our human understanding says that's not fair and that's not right. <laughs> you need to earn it. A lot of the church preaches, no, you need to earn your blessing. You need to work hard. Love will have you work hard, but not in order to receive what already belongs to us. It is a different understanding. Right standing with God is only by faith in what Jesus has done, not what we have done. We believe that God actually makes us right with himself as a gift of his grace. And all we do is believe it and receive it. That is the new covenant. It all works that way. You believe it and you receive it. We don't earn it by living right or by keeping the law in any way, shape, or form. Even the ones we make up for ourselves, those don't count either. <laughs> it is a gift. It is only a gift. And it's a gift that actually changes our identity. It changes who and what we are. We go from being slaves to sin to being the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You don't make that transition in your brain all at once. It takes some time. <laughs> we go from being a hired servant to being adopted into sonship. We go from being outsiders of the kingdom to being the very bride of the king who owns the whole kingdom and who sits with us in Christ Jesus in heavenly places. We are seated to co-rule and co-reign, not just over ourselves, but in this world. That's why we pray. <laughs> we go from not knowing who we really are to finding our true selves in and through Jesus. So many believers see themselves as small children who are trying to be good so that their heavenly father won't be mad at them and punish them for their mistakes and failures. They are earnest. They are trying really hard to earn their Heavenly Father's love and approval. If I just do this long enough and right enough, God will be happy with me. 
I lived my whole Christian life that way. I would have told you you were saved by grace, but I would tell you this is a living gift, and if you mess it up, <laughs> if you don't walk the chalk, you're out of here. I had no concept of what grace was and how far-reaching this grace was. Unfortunately, most Christians don't either. They really think God is going to punish them. <laughs> Even though Jesus said before going to the cross, judgment of the whole world is now. Jesus said the whole world was judged at the cross. The sin of the whole world was judged at the cross. He can't pass judgment on us now because the judgment for sin is death. <laughs> we would all be dead <laughs> if we were living by the old covenant. But instead he says, no, I don't want you to die. I want you to have life. That's what you get when you come to Christ. Eternal life. Now, does this mean that all believers act like they are the bride of Christ or a born-again son of God? Of course not. <laughs> but why is that? If we're all brand new and we got everything we need, why do we act a mess sometimes? Mostly it's because we don't know who we really are and what we really can do. We have a false identity. Within this false identity, you also find that they are immature in their understanding of who we are in Christ. They have the naughty little children syndrome instead of the bride ruling and reigning syndrome. They have pictures of themselves that is unworthy and unapprovable and unlovable. And God says, oh, <laughs> you could see what I see. You are more than a conqueror. That means he conquered everything for us and said, here, <laughs> this is who you are. Walk in this. How? Believe you and receive. We see this truth of being immature in their understanding in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 3. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I found it impossible to speak to you as those who are spiritually mature people. For you are still dominated by the mindset of the flesh. And because you are immature infants in Christ, I had to nurse you and feed you with milk, not with solid food of more advanced teachings, because you weren't ready for it. In fact, you are still not ready to be fed solid food, for you are living your lives dominated by the mindset of the flesh. Ask yourselves, is there jealousy among you? Do you compare yourselves with others? Do you quarrel like children and end up taking sides? If so, this proves that you are living your lives centered on yourselves, dominated by the mindset of the flesh, and behaving like unbelievers. I love the way the Passion Translation translates the word carnal from the King James into the mindset of the flesh. I think it helps a lot to say, it is my flesh head. <laughs> it is not me that I have a problem with. It is my flesh head. It is my thinking and believing, my understanding that is immature. Their minds had not yet been renewed to the point where they could even comprehend the reality of their new identity in Christ. Their flesh head, which is their brain functioning on what they have believed in the past and have stored in their memory, hadn't yet been programmed with the up-to-date software. <laughs> so they kept operating from programming that was based on their past experience and indoctrination. You can see this is exactly what the early church struggled with. We're Jews. 
but we're Christians. But we're Jews, but we're Christians. <laughs> How do we marry those two things together? They needed the software update. <laughs> they needed new programming. So they keep operating from what they have learned in the past instead of operating from their spirit man. Spirit man is a new concept for these people. <laughs> what? I'm a spirit? They didn't have that understanding. The Apostle Paul does that for us. He says, you have a body, a soul, and a spirit. And if you understand that, it answers a lot of questions. Here's where you get saved. Here's where you work it out. <laughs> this is who you really are. We're going to let your mind and your heart understand who you really are, and then that's what you will live out. But as long as you have bad pictures of yourself, that is what you will live out. As long as you think God is mean and horrible and waiting to smack you up alongside the head, that is what you will live out. We needed to change our brain. It takes time and practice to learn to continuously lean on the Holy Spirit and to trust what he says to us. His favorite way to speak to us, I believe, is through the written word of God. Yes, the Holy Spirit speaks to us spontaneously, but as a new Christian, you have no idea you hear God. <laughs> is that you, God? Is that me, God? <laughs> you haven't learned to differentiate. It's just immaturity. That's all it is. We have to learn to hear. We have to learn to quiet ourselves so that we hear. Father, down in the same passage where he tells them that they are immature, Paul goes on to tell them that they are collectively and individually the temple of God. Again, pointing them to their new identity. He's not scolding them for their bad behavior. He says, you need to have a new identity. You need to know who you really are. In verse 16 in 1 Corinthians 3, the Apostle Paul says this, you don't realize that together you have become God's inner sanctuary and that the Spirit of God makes his permanent home in you. They always thought in terms of buildings. The Spirit of God is in the building. If we want to be in the presence of God, we go to the building. Well, God fixed that for us. We are the building. <laughs> we are the temple. We are the holy place. This is where God makes his permanent home. So Paul basically reminds them of this new identity. They are the temple of God. All of them had the Holy Spirit permanently at home in their spirit. If we could just get the church to believe that. The whole church. What if everybody believed? You have the Holy Spirit. You have all of the Holy Spirit. And you can make it, take advantage of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's there for, to help you. And collectively, they were also meet the meeting place or sanctuary where God would display his glory and power through demonstrations of love and the graces of the Holy Spirit. The gifts. All grace. Because God gives everyone all that he is and all that he has. There's no reason for people to be fighting over their favorite ministers or their favorite spiritual gifts. Paul tells them plainly, all of them belong to you. All the ministers are yours and all the gifts are yours too. What do we see today? Michelle said, God's awful talky today. <laughs> he's talking to this person. He's talking to this person. He's talking. Yes, that's what Paul's talking about. When we all get together, God wants to express himself through all of us. Sometimes, yeah, he's very talky. <laughs> and that's a good thing. That is prophecy, edification, encouragement. It's all part of the graces of the Holy Spirit. One of the things I noticed when reading through this chapter was how many times the Apostle Paul used the word brethren. In the Passion Translation, they clarify 
that the word brethren would represent both brothers and sisters in the Lord, which is why it caught my attention, brothers and sisters. You don't see that in King James. You just see brethren. Well, I'm a brethren, <laughs> but physically, I'm a sister. <laughs> so they try to incorporate a better understanding of who is included. That's unusual, so that's why I was like, wow, he says brothers and sisters a lot. Otherwise, I wouldn't have paid any attention to it. But the Apostle Paul uses the word brethren 28 times in this letter. He keeps over and over, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. I'm telling you this, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. Now you have to remember, he's a Jew. Talking to Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles don't get along. <laughs> what is Paul doing? You have a new identity. You're now my brother and sister in Christ. You're part of my family, the family of God. More identity. I think Paul is trying to make a point. Paul is Jewish, and the Corinthians have a lot of Gentiles in it. They also had some Jews, but primarily, scholars believe they were mostly Gentiles and knew nothing <laughs> except paganism. <laughs> so Paul really is emphasizing their new identity in Christ as part of a bigger unit, a part of a family. When you become family, there's a little bit of responsibility there <laughs> to treat them a certain way. You see, we usually treat our family better than we treat strangers. And for Gentiles to treat Jews like family and Jews, Gentiles like family, this was a big deal. This is a whole mind shift. You are now brothers and sisters in Christ. We are all related to each other by blood and by covenant. See, we're used to by blood as a relative and by covenant as a marriage. God says, no, you got both. You are related by the blood of the lamb and the marriage new covenant. So when we come to Christ, we gain a whole brand new family. And not all of them believe the same thing. <laughs> they had a lot of problems. Not everyone believed the same thing. So that's why he had to write so many letters. <laughs> but he's trying to tell them we are all one in the Spirit. Everyone has preference with the Father and with Jesus. Because we are technically all one. You're in Jesus and I'm in Jesus. We can't help but be one. We're actually connected. Galatians 3, 27. It was faith that immersed you into Jesus, the anointed one. And now you are covered and clothed with his anointing. And we no longer see each other in our former state, Jew or non-Jew, rich or poor, male or female. Because we're all one through our union with Jesus Christ. And there is no distinction between us. Over and over again, the Apostle Paul points his readers back to who they really are in their spirit man. As we have seen, if our minds are not renewed to the truth of our new identities, we will simply continue to live from our former identities and bad programming and live in a way that doesn't look any different than an unbeliever. But that's not what God wants for us. God wants us to live as masters on this earth and as bondservants or love slaves to Jesus and our Father. God wants us to learn that through receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, we can reign in life through our Lord Jesus. The word reign, it means to rule as a king over ourselves and over our lives. And yes, over the earth. <laughs> we can speak to the earth as well. This takes renewing our minds to the realities of who and what we really are. 
As our identities come into agreement with who we really are, our choices and decisions change, which in turn then cause changes in our lives, especially the ones we're looking for, the ones we're believing for. Sowing and reaping, our choices have a consequence. So when we change our choices because we've changed our mind, we get a different result. And that's what we're looking for. We can't be a baby in our understanding and rule like a king. We need to mature in our spiritual understanding and then choose to rule and reign with and through Jesus. Since not everyone has equally matured in their spiritual understanding, it would also be true that not everyone who wants to be a teacher should be a teacher. A few years back, we had a, a lovely couple come to visit us. And the very first time they met us, they said, we're looking for positions as teachers. I'm thinking, you don't even know us. <laughs> but that's what they wanted. They had it in their mind that they were called to be teachers. And wherever they were going to church, there was no place for them. So they went looking for a place to teach. That's not usually the way a teacher is installed. Usually they get to know you. And then your calling becomes apparent. And then they place you. But sometimes there are people who just want to be teachers. They love to teach. They feel called to teach, even if there isn't a place for them to teach. Like I said, we're always teaching. If we understand that we're always teaching, you'll find a pupil. <laughs> this is one of the things that James is trying to point out when he says, my brethren, be not many masters or teachers, knowing that we shall receive a greater condemnation from the people we teach. Right after James warns his readers about self-appointed teachers, he also very quickly lets them know that no one is perfect in their performance. James 3, verse 2. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same man is a perfect man, and able to also bridle the whole body. The word offend here simply means to trip, err, or slip. And the word all would make much more sense to us if it were placed before the word offend. <laughs> Greek is situated differently. So it would say, for in many things, we all trip, err, and slip. We're all fallible. In other words, we all make mistakes from time to time. But if a person can control what comes out of their mouth, he is considered, quote unquote, perfect. A better understanding would be mature or fully grown into adulthood. We know the word perfect doesn't mean perfect the way we usually think of perfect because James has just told us everybody makes mistakes. So if everybody makes mistakes, then nobody is perfect <laughs> in their performance. But when someone has matured to the point where he can control his mouth, then he has also matured to the point where he can control his whole body. And this is really good news because our bodies literally have a mind of their own. <laughs> it's called the mind of the flesh. <laughs> and when we think of the mind of the flesh or the carnal mind, we need to remember that that type of thinking comes from that which is merely natural. The King James calls it carnal. Some call it natural thinking. But it all comes from the five senses. It has nothing to do with reaching the spirit man. It's all about what I know in my understanding, what I can feel in my body. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians live on that, the flesh head. <laughs> anyway, there's a lot of junk in our brain. <laughs> And our brain just continually reaches back to our past experiences and knowledge in an effort to help us navigate life and make appropriate decisions. If we don't have the spirit man to lead us and guide us, we will just go back to whatever's in our head, whatever somebody else taught us, and we'll live out of our flesh head, which doesn't get good results. 
Unfortunately, our brain is filled with misinformation and misperceptions, and so it's very good at giving us what is simply natural or of the flesh instead of what is supernatural and that which comes from God. So our brain will continue to give us the wrong answers to our problems until we take the time to renew our minds with the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. One of the things that I do when I want to hear God is to quiet my brain. If something's troubling me, I have to shut it down. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Take deep breaths. No, I'm not listening to my flesh head. My flesh head is upset. My spirit man is not. Spirit man never gets upset. Never loses his temper. Never snaps at anybody. Never. Flesh head, oh yeah. <laughs> flesh head will cause you to do those sorts of things because you're trying to handle the pressures that you're feeling. So we have to quiet our brains because our natural brain will come up with really bad advice <laughs> and have you do really stupid things, all because we think it's logical and good for us, which it usually isn't. For example, according to science, when we lose weight, we go through all of the work of losing weight, our brains will automatically tell us that we're more hungry than we were before we lost weight in an effort to get us to put the weight back on. Your brain is not your friend. <laughs> your brain says, I want you to stay alive, and I think you're trying to starve me, so I'm going to make you more hungry. Think you're going to lose weight? I don't think so. <laughs> you're going to be more hungry. That's flesh head. That's our brain doing to us something we didn't ask it to do. <laughs> We're trying to lose the weight, and it's like, no, you need more cookies. <laughs> you would feel so happy if you eat those cookies. Your brain likes you to be happy in your flesh. <laughs> so our brains can actually be what is sabotaging us. That's why we don't just go into what we know from before. We have to have the mind of Christ, a different way of looking at it. They have the power to tell our brain to knock it off. <laughs> We have power to change even our physical bodies. The same holds true for adolescents. Remember adolescents? <laughs> know some adolescents? <laughs> Their brains are swimming in hormones. The young ladies become especially emotional, and the young gentlemen become impulsive and daring. That's why we don't give them car insurance. Way too expensive. <laughs> the last thing an adolescent should do is trust their brain. <laughs> to trust their brain, to, to bring up the thoughts that agree with God. We need to teach them to always adjust their thoughts to come into agreement with God's thoughts. When my kids were in their teens, I had read a medical article saying that an adolescent brain is the same thing as an adult brain that's damaged. <laughs> I was like, I'm showing this to my kids. <laughs> and I did. You cannot trust your brain. <laughs> Don't make big decisions without me. You need counsel. <laughs> your brain is not your friend. <laughs> I actually got them t-shirts that said Dame Bramaged. <laughs> yes, you are. You must remember. You cannot trust your brain. <laughs> you must always go to God. <laughs> but thank God for the Holy Spirit, because even teenagers can have the Holy Spirit, and mine did. They did pretty good during those years. I kept telling them, can't trust your brain. <laughs> Our God is a speaking God, and he is happy to bring us his thoughts. God's never going, hide and seek. 
come and find the answer. Come on, try hard. You know, you show some real effort and I'll give you the answer. No, free and easy. Come, listen, participate, get in the word. I'm happy to give you the answers. <laughs> However, it is easier for us to recognize God's thoughts, even our teenagers in particular, if they've been in the word of God, getting familiar with God's words and thoughts. And the Bible is really God's favorite way, I think, of speaking to us because that is our plumb line. How do we know what is true and right? We've got to go to the Word of God. Our identity and spiritual maturity comes from knowing God personally as our Father and knowing His heart and His thoughts toward us. It is so important that we understand that we are just like Jesus in our spirit and that our spirit is one spirit with him. We know all of this is true because the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are really the children of God. And as his children, we can operate the same way he did and the same way Jesus did. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spoke all of creation into being. And then Jesus, as a human being, when he was tempted by Satan, spoke the written word as his defense. If Jesus needed to have the written word of God in his heart and in his mouth, we probably do too. <laughs> James's point is that our tongue may be a small thing, but it has amazing power, both physically and in the natural and spiritually. Verse 3. We put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. In other words, we can take dominion over a very large horse and lead it to do whatever we want it to do by gently putting a bit in its mouth and a bridle around its head. The point is, what we use may be small, our tongue, and our method may be gentle, but what we put in our mouth and our head allows us to have power over things that are bigger than us. God has given me this scripture many times. <laughs> when I've asked about something regarding my health, he reminds me, I'm a master over this body. I can speak faith-filled words to my body and tell it what I want it to do, and it will have to come into agreement. In verse 3, where it says that we may obey us, the word there means to come into agreement with us. Come into agreement. Yes, sometimes our brain working against us, not helping us, sabotaging our efforts to make changes, but we can speak to our body and we can speak to our brain and tell it to knock it off. <laughs> and we can overcome with the power of God. Verse four, behold also the ships, which though they be so great are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor listeth. That means whoever is driving is in charge. He gets to go wherever he wants to go. Even though there are fierce winds, even though there are exterior pressures, he gets to go where he wants to go. But how is he getting there? By the rudder, by the small thing that is able to turn things around. Again, it doesn't matter how big something is or how much outside pressure is applied. It is the small rudder that enables the captain to turn his vessel in the opposite direction according to his desire. Not according to his own strength, but according to his desire. Through faith, our tongue is capable of releasing great power, even over our own vessels <laughs> and situations. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus' disciples 
are marveling over the tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. They're like, wow, Jesus said, I cursed the tree, you die from the roots. And it did. <laughs> and they're like, that's amazing. And Jesus, I can just see him going, really? <laughs> have, let me tell you again, have faith in God. <laughs> he says, truly I say to you, whoever, whoever, whoever says to this mountain, this really big thing, this really hard stuff, whoever says to these problems, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now that's Jesus talking. That's not a TV evangelist. That's Jesus talking. <laughs> he understands that he releases power with his words. Somewhere else in the scripture it says, I believed, therefore I spoke. Speaking two things and believing releases the, the spiritual power to accomplish those things. Now sometimes, like our bodies, they can be a little stubborn. They're like, no, you can't make me. <laughs> yes, I can. You keep at it. <laughs> because we're also changing our brain. It's our flesh head that says, oh, no, you can't get healed that way. It's our flesh head that says, that'll never work. It's the flesh head that tries to talk us out of our own power. Because it is the same Jesus that spoke to that tree. The same Jesus that cursed the tree and it died, just like that. Same Jesus that lives in us. Same Jesus that speaks through us. That's that union again. <laughs> what he did, we can do. We may have to practice. Yep. <laughs> we may have to practice to get good at doing these things. Building up our, our ability to believe. Absolutely. I think he's saying, speak what you want to have happen, the same way our God and Father did in the beginning. Little kids always want to be like Daddy. How did Daddy do it? Daddy spoke to stuff. <laughs> Daddy believed what he spoke would come to pass. He didn't consult anybody else. He only did what he wanted to have happen. He only said what he wanted to have happen, even when he, there was nothing to see yet. Remember, we are his representative on this earth, and we have been given the exact same power and authority as Jesus. If Jesus did it, so can we. Because the same God who spoke everything into being is the same God who lives and speaks through us. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are not short on power. We're short on understanding. Our words are powerful, both spiritually and naturally. And that's part of what James gets to at in the following verses. Words can bless. Praise God, God speaks. Words can bless, but words can also hurt. Fire? Fire can bring warmth and comfort. Or fire can wound and destroy. To be beneficial, both words and fire need to be kept under control. Verse 5. And so the tongue is a small part of the body, yet it carries great power. Just think of how a small flame can set a huge forest fire. And I like that because how does a forest fire get going? With a little thing. It doesn't go from a spark to a blazing forest of fire. It takes time. <laughs> it grows in its ability to consume. We grow in our ability to 
release the power of God. Verse 6, the tongue is a fire. It can be compared to the sum total of wickedness and is the most dangerous part of the human body. It corrupts the entire body and is a hellish flame. It releases fire that can burn throughout the course of human existence. Wow. <laughs> he doesn't like the tongue very much. <laughs> Verse 7, for every wild animal on earth, including birds, creeping reptiles, creatures of the sea and land, have all been overpowered and tamed by humans. But the tongue is not able to be tamed. It is a fickle, unrestrained evil that spews out words full of toxic poison. We use our tongue to praise God our Father and then turn around and curse a person who is made in his very image. Out of the same mouth, we pour out words of praise one minute and curses the next. Brothers and sisters, this should not be. <laughs> and he's right. <laughs> when I read this, part of me wants to protest that believers don't talk like that. But the truth is, because I was like, God, I don't like this. <laughs> this sounds like part of us is evil, and it's not. I don't understand this. And then he brought somebody to mind. I have met spirit-filled, tongue-talking, Bible-believing Christians, real Christians, even Bible college Christians, that when provoked, their brain reaches right back in their memory banks and brings forth stuff. <laughs> stuff that I would never repeat stuff. <laughs> Horrible stuff. Shocking stuff. <laughs> I remember when this person was telling me a story, and in her story, she was cussing at people, so she started cussing. And like, you're like, oh my goodness, stop, cease, desist. <laughs> God said, immaturity. You see, they haven't learned to control their emotions, first of all, and they haven't learned that we don't reach back into our flesh head. Flesh head will come running forth and tell you to be angry and cuss and do all sorts of ridiculous things. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, will say, keep your mouth closed. We'll just wake this out. <laughs> My mama used to say, if you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. It's a good rule. <laughs> now, when the Lord gives you something to say in response, it'll be the appropriate word. Christians who misbehave, we saw that earlier. Christians, when their walk looks like they're still an unbeliever, are immature Christians. He never tells them, see, you're not really saved. <laughs> he tells them, no, you're immature. You're acting like a baby. You don't have to stay a baby. You can become more mature in your understanding of who and what you really are. When we see who we really are, acting out of our flesh head, we go, I'm not doing that. I'll destroy people. I'll destroy my witness. I will grieve my own heart <laughs> because I love him. <laughs> and I don't want to do those things. Other Christians haven't yet developed their understanding and their relationship with God that is based on who he is in us. That we don't do things from our flesh head. We do things from the mind of Christ. We're one with him. That's just old, bad, yucky programming. It's not who we are. We need to know who we are so that we can bring forth the fruit of who we really are. So what if I realize I'm an immature Christian? What can I do to become more mature? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, an immature believer needs to better understand their true identity. 
He doesn't scold them for their bad behavior. He says, you don't know who you are. Those of us who are walking in the power and glory, we know who we are. <laughs> That's why we get to do this stuff, because we know who we are. We're one with God. We can do what God does. They need a better understanding of what it means that they are actually one with Christ. I'm still learning this. I think this is one of those things we learn all the days of our life. I am one with the Christ. I am one with God the Father. I am one with the one who speaks things into being. That's who I really am. I am the promise keeper, the light in the darkness, the miracle worker, the way maker. Why? Because I'm one with him. And I am sent into this world to be just like him. (laughs) To show people who God really is. And that better understanding comes from getting into the word of God and letting the Holy Spirit get the word of God into their heart and mind. Reprogramming the new software. (laughs) Then they should practice speaking the truth of who they really are to themselves. This is so important. That's why I like to change the words to that song. Waymaker, light in the darkness, miracle worker, promise keeper. That's who I am in Christ. You see yourself differently. If you believe you're a way maker, promise keeper, light in the darkness, and miracle worker, hmm, what kind of opportunities are going to show up? Because <laughs> we got to practice. <laughs> and that's the whole point. Like Mark was saying earlier, when we, when we know who we are and who lives in us, we have confidence. So that when the Holy Spirit goes, go pray for them. We don't come up with three reasons why that's not a good idea. <laughs> we go, I am the way, maker, the promise keeper, the light in the darkness. That's who I am. Yes, I'll go do it. <laughs> I get to do what Jesus did and still does. We have to talk to ourselves about our true identity because we still have tons of bad programming. In order for us to get the fullness of who he is through this little brain of ours, we need to practice and convince our brain of who we really are. When we convince our brain and our heart, well, God can move easy. <laughs> it took God years to get me to have enough confidence to speak in front of people. It took years for God to convince me that I could interpret tongues. It took God years to convince me that I could speak in tongues. I was a hard case. <laughs> there were so many things I didn't understand. God's not in a hurry. But God wants us to know who we are. Because there's a whole world out there who needs to see who Jesus really is. As our identities come into agreement with who we really are in Christ, our choices change, our desires change, our decisions change, which in turn causes our behavior to change. And when our behavior begins to change, the sowing and reaping becomes much better. (laughs) We start reaping of the blessing. We start reaping of our identity. We start reaping of the fullness of God in us and through us. We want the rest of the world to see the real God. The God who is grace. The God who is love. The God who is not mad at people for their mistakes. He doesn't want to punish them. He wants to rescue them. That's God's heart for us, too. He always wants to rescue us. Even if we're in a bad place, he's not interested in punishment. He knows punishment doesn't change your heart. 
in a way that's good. But love will. Love will. Amen? Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you, Father God, that you love us when we're immature in different areas of our life. You love us and are so crazy about us, and you so want the fullness of who you are to be lived in us and through us. You want us to know you like we've never known you before. You want your love for us and your love through us to change our worlds. Father God, we know that you are the God of love, not the God of anger. Father God, we know the Old Testament was completely different. They were like small children who did need spankings. <laughs> but we live in a new covenant where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit treat us like adults. You respect our decision. You respect our free will. You respect who you've made us and created us to be. But you are so much more than our little tiny brains can even imagine, Father God. We ask that you open our understanding bigger than it's ever been. That we start walking into the fullness of who you are in a way we haven't before. And Father God, we ask that you help us to change our worlds. Help us to love our neighbor. Help us to love the Democrats. Help us to love those who don't know any better. Help us to love those who are sitting in darkness and don't even know it. We thank you, Father God, that we are all the things you say we are. We are waymakers. We are miracle workers. We are the light in the darkness. We are everything. Jesus is. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.